Hello everyone and welcome to the Artsy Creator Theatre Podcast. My name is Nabila Said and I'm joined by Matt Lyon. Hello. Naim Kapadia. Hello. And yeah, we're back to talk about Tatouf today by Wild Rice. So this is an adaptation of the original French play by Molière, written in the 1660s, so that's uh, 400 years ago, uh, and adapted by playwright Joel Tan and directed by Glenn Gouy. So, um, just a quick summary of the plot. In Tatouf, we see this wealthy family headed by Orgon, who has um, kind of like married a kind of younger woman and they have, uh, and has two children from a previous marriage uh, called Damis and Marianne. Uh, and the household is kind of like besieged by an unwelcome presence in the form of Tatouf, this religious Christian preacher, probably in quotes, um, but really kind of like a con artist who uh, was actually living on the streets before he's been, uh, he was invited by Orgon to live in the house um, as a kind of guest. And Orgon is extremely taken by this man, you know, very seduced by him to some extent, um, that he becomes really unbearingly restrictive to his family uh, and blind to criticism as well. And, and he kind of slowly, as the play progresses, cedes more and more power to Tatouf until, you know, kind of Tatouf becomes the, the powerful figure in, in the play. And the other characters include Elmia's brother, Cleont, Doreen, their maid, Valère, who Marianne wants to marry in a kind of sham marriage arrangement, and then also Madame Pernell, who's a kind of like a matriarch figure, the mother of Orgon, kind of a, a crotchety woman who doesn't like Elmier, the, the so-called like stepmother figure who no one likes, I guess. Um, yeah, and, and, and the family is kind of painted as a um, like really a very, very wealthy family um, with a kind of uh, questionable morals, let's put it that way. So basically, this is Wild Rice's version of Tatouf. And the reason why, why I say this is Joel makes quite a, a lot of uh, departures from the original and maybe amplifying, maybe adding to some of the themes of the original by Molière. Um, yeah, maybe Naim, I could start with you. Ooh, How did you okay. find Tatouf? Yeah, so um, I should should add that, um, you know, Glenn as he mentions even in the program, has been wanting to stage a version of Tartuffe for years and years and has gone through countless existing versions out mm. there but has not found something that really spoke to him. And so he commissioned Joel Tan to write um, a version for him that spoke to our times. And obviously, Joel's version of Tartuffe is a very significant departure from the original. Um, it's a really a complete rewrite of the play. And I think one of the first big changes he made was to introduce a gay relationship. So in this version, Damis, the son of Orgon, is actually in a clandestine gay relationship with Valère, the man who his sister is about to marry. And the whole reason for the marriage is a sham mm -hmm. so that the sister can basically lead a modern life of you know travel and adventure and not be confined to domesticity and the two gay lovers can kind of have a relationship behind closed doors which would otherwise be denied to them. So there's a lot of exposition about this gay relationship and a lot of um, rather lurid sexual <laughs> um, gags that the play's awash with and therefore fully deserving of the R18 rating. So that's one big um, 
change that he's made. And the other big change he's made, I guess, would be just introducing a lot of feminist themes into the play. Mm. So um, the motivation of the daughter, Marianne, is far more feminist. She is clearly someone who chafes against this idea of being a woman in a world ruled by men. I think she talks about how she wants the independence and all of that. And Elmer, who is the wife character, starts off as being someone who is a bit of a rival to Marianne, this younger wife, but they grow into allies as Elmer almost wants to prevent Marianne because the husband wants Marianne to marry Tartuffe, the man who he's so taken mm-hmm. in by. And she tries her best to stop this, this marriage from taking place and they become allies in the end. So it's the idea of women supporting women and, you know, standing mm-hmm. up for each other, that very feminist kind of slant. So that's, um, you know, two of the bigger changes Changes, but I think there are a lot of other nuances that that Joel's introduced. So Matt, maybe you have something to to add on that. I was dreading seeing this play because I directed it ten years ago. I directed the Richard Wilbur version, which is in verse and is just amazingly funny. But I changed about ten percent of it to make it fit the local context. And this year, without knowing. Wild Rice was doing it, I decided to do my own translation and keep it in verse. And so I was thinking I was going to go in and watch Wild Rice. And obviously, I'd be going in with incredible biases. And I was afraid I'd be sitting there going, well, actually, I do it so much better. What are you thinking, you fools? Like that voice. Oh, yes. Okay. I'll keep it up, shall I? It reminds me of the critic in, in Ratatouille for some reason. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? Yeah. But fortunately, that really didn't come up because I think if you're translating Tartuffe, you've got three decisions to make straight away. Do you keep it in verse? In the original, it's rhyming couplets in French Alexandrines, which most translators, if they're translating it into verse form into iambic pentameter, rhymed A-A-B-B-C-C. And I decided to keep the verse, and Joel decided to go to prose. And then, do you change the time? Mm. And I decided to change the time to the present day, and he decided to keep it in the 17th century. And then, do you change the place? I've Singaporeanized it, he has not. At that point, they are completely different plays. Mm. So... I will now stop talking about mine. It's irrelevant to this discussion. Except that I feel that whichever way you decide to go, there are certain compromises. You know, if you go left, you can't have everything that the right-hand path would have offered you Mm. and vice versa. So it may be interesting to talk about some of the things that he necessarily and deliberately, I'm sure, sacrificed in order to get what he had. But yes, he's gone for a version which tones down some of the farcical elements and attempts to make space for more modern issues in terms of quantity and probably in terms of seriousness and in terms of attempted impact. The original's really quite simple. It's about religious hypocrisy, and these days I guess we'd call it gaslighting and gullibility and Mm. fake news and things. Whereas he, as you say, has introduced homosexuality and feminism as the main two, but he's also introduced atheism versus religion. He's also introduced the income gap. This is a family of one percenters who have taken in somebody from the lower stratum of society. He's also introduced the idea of modern families with the stepmother being disliked by the children, which was not at all in the original. Mm. And so he's created the play he wanted to write. I think it's then a little bit disingenuous that in the program notes he talks about a French play reaching out 
from the 17th century and having so much to say about us because he's just stuck in a load of stuff that wasn't there. And he might say, oh, well, I excavated it from the text. Okay, but you had to dig a long way to do that. But I like it. I love the ambition. It has a kind of a similar relationship to the source material that West Side Story has to Romeo and Juliet. And I love, you know, I like West Side Story a lot better than I like Romeo and Juliet. And here I think he's made a very interesting, very modern play with a relationship to Tartuffe that I'm very glad to see, even though ultimately I'm not sure if everything gets pulled off entirely. Mm. Mm. Nabila? Yeah. So I was just thinking about, I don't know, maybe the question of style, perhaps, of what Joel was trying to go for. So I remember how, like, the opening... Remember, like, we are, while waiting for people to kind of uh, stream into the theatre, you hear... There was this very hear, kind of chamber music Yeah, 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 on, like, yeah. really dignified. Yes. And then the moment the play opens, it's like Lady Marmalade yeah. and, um, and the character's kind of, like, in debauchery kind of a scene. And um, I was like, oh, okay. Like, I kind of, like, got what they were kind of trying to go for. And the modern touches... I know, Matt, you were saying, like, oh, maybe adding things that weren't there necessarily or mm. really, like, dig- having to dig deep. I feel like it was necessary... I don't know, like, so when I was watching The Family and thinking about what Matt, you said about, like, not liking these characters a lot, or just kind of one percenters that we are not really mm. meant to like, right? And I was comparing them to kind of, like, seeing the Kardashians or the Osborns yeah, on, yeah. on stage, where, okay, Osborns is a bit more dated. Kardashians probably <laughs> more timely. But, like, you can't really like these characters, right? And so because of that, Tatouf as a villain becomes kind of deflated in some sense. Yeah. Um, and... Of course, like visually, when Tatu actually appears, like he appears like well after one hour. Oh, like well, he appears like in Act Three. Really? Out of five. Wow. So the moment he appears, he's meant to be like, wow, like the villain is here. But I'm like, I've just seen the Kardashians and like all the terrible things they've done. Like, this is Rasputin, maybe, but kind of like tonally, the effect of the villain wasn't as strong as I thought it was going to be. I absolutely agree. And that's one of the things that I think he's sacrificed to bring in as much as he has. The original is often subtitled Tartuffe the Imposter mm. or Tartuffe the Hypocrite. I can't remember which one this has gone for. The, the Imposter. Yeah. But here, a better subtitle would be The Imposters or The Hypocrites. <laughs> Because you have these gay people who are trying to pretend to be straight. You have the daughter who is trying to pretend to be religious in order to fool her father. They have clearly inherited wealth that does not appear to be justified by their Mm. merit. They're trying to put on the facade of being a happy family and they tell each other to fuck off all the time. Mm. So they are horrible people. And... I'm not sure how much that was intended, and it certainly does lessen the impact of Tartuffe's appearance, which in a traditional staging should be like, when I staged it 10 years ago, Tartuffe entered, everybody laughed for 10 seconds, mm. just, and he hadn't said anything, because it, he's been... He's been built up so built much. Built up yeah. so much. It's one of the easiest laughs to get in theatre, Tartuffe's entrance, audience rolling on floor. That doesn't happen here. I wonder how much that needed to have been sacrificed. Because I think that if you cut the parts where they disparage him for being poor 
and where so much of the family's onstage behavior seems to be something that they can do because they're rich and therefore why not? Let's throw ostentatiously extravagant parties. Let's have sex in front of the servants and not go off to a bedroom somewhere. Mm-hmm. If they hadn't introduced that element, I think I would have liked the characters more, and I think we could still have had the feminism and the homosexuality, maybe even the atheism in there. So I think that the income gap theme or thread that was in there, I think that was a bit of a regrettable choice. So for me, I don't think it's a regrettable choice in the sense that I feel that we live in a world where this is the state of how the rich people are. So I kind of feel like Joel was going for like we yeah. are used to this thing and it's terrible and, and I'm, I'm putting it on stage. But because of that, like you can't really get the effect of Tartuff, the play by Molière. Yeah, yeah, I think it's probably a deliberate sacrifice. He was clearly going for what you say. Yeah. I would have, yet again, probably gone a different way there. And I don't know, I just somehow feel that it's also very influenced by pop culture. Yes, exactly. It is so because, you know, honestly, and I'm just going to rattle off Netflix names here, which everyone <laughs> is going to recognise. But like I was thinking of Bling Empire. I was thinking of Bridgerton. Mm. You know, it's all these things which we've been seeing, like, you know, people in period costume ha- speaking in a very modern way, um, ostentatious displays of wealth. We obviously got elements of this crazy rich Asians mm. because they were crazy. Well, not Asian, I suppose they're not meant to be, but like, you <laughs> know, crazy rich of their time, basically, the one percenters doing pretty much whatever they want, throwing Mm. these extravagant, ostentatious parties. Mm. And they're not very likable characters. And I agree with you, Matt. I think, you know, introducing the homosexuality, introducing the feminism was nice, were important uh, modern themes. But adding all those other things like the dislike towards the stepmother at the start, I think there was Mm. all these comments about her being the younger woman who was Mm. just kind of um, come in and she's kind of painted almost as a social climber right? yeah yeah. so there was all of that like she's kind of painted as a bit of a villain herself and then they're all not very likeable because they're kind of quite contemptuous against the poor mm. and debauched in their own way yeah. so I think just adding all of that maybe was a bit too much there was just so much exposition that it took ages for us to finally get to the point where we're finally trying to unmask Tartuffe mm. and yes I think the main point is that Tartuffe's entrance just gets muted and and this is completely despite the fact that Benjamin Chow actually does a really oh, good fantastic. job. A really good... I mean, Ben has obviously been, um, you know, a fixture of the scene for many years now and has done some great roles. And, you know, he kind of embodied the role so well just in kind of portraying that perfect face of piety but at the same time you can see that it's all an act and even when this is exposed and his evil is revealed in the end he kind of maintains that evil and owns it and manages that transition I think really well and I think it was all the small little ticks the way in which he carried himself there was a point where he convulsed on the floor in tongues um, you know the, the, all these nuances right. which he brought to the character which I thought were, were very well done and Unfortunately, it just felt muted because we'd just seen a, a sexual gag between two men um, where, where one of them's hopping around without his trousers yeah. and things like that. So I guess like what you're trying to say or how I see it is that we've already seen vulgarity in a very stark form in the previous scenes. So yeah. then when Tatuf comes, it isn't that vulgar really. It's like, okay, yeah. it's one of the terrible things that's happening in this play, but not really the most evil thing. But maybe just on, on the note of Benjamin Chow. So... I don't know about style, and I know like Matt, you also like Ben's uh, portrayal. Loved it. 
Yeah, I found it like slightly cartoonish um, in a kind of weird way. It's probably direction, but like even the way he was kind of like scrunching his face, I was like, wow, this exaggerated style is like really interesting, but I've not really seen it in the other characters. So I was kind of like wondering what was the decision between that choice there? Well, I will see you're slightly cartoonish and I'll raise you very cartoonish. <laughs> but I loved that. It was just the highest standard of Pixar animation. Absolute precision every frame a picture. I think they needed to get some of that stylistic separation because his entrance doesn't have the impact anymore for all the reasons that we've said. So then how is he not like all the others? And it's because he takes that extremely stylized, pictorial acting style even further. You could imagine with his character flipping through an old book of black and white illustrations, right? And you turn the page and there you are looking at Benjamin Chow playing Tartuffe. And the way he moves between them so fluidly or sometimes so sharply. And then when the play turns more serious and he has power over the family and he doesn't have to hide anymore. Also dropping, I think, for me exactly the right amount of that so that you take his threat very seriously incredibly. His character isn't written with the widest tonal range in the play, but I think it is written with the highest requirement for precision, and he absolutely nailed it. I think the highest requirement for tonal range is probably Jotan's character. Mm. She also nailed it. Mm. Yeah, Joe was fantastic. I mean, especially in the scene where she um, is trying to get Tartuffe to seduce her with the husband hidden underneath the table. And yeah, I think she just managed that transition well. I think she started off as a bit of this painted as this kind of like social climber villain mm. sort of thing, not getting along with the daughter. But she kind of becomes this kind of feminist maternal figure who wants to really rescue the family from the clutches of this charlatan. Mm. And I think she just did it really well while still maintaining all of that comic elements. I mean, fantastic facial expressions. And, you know, she's a fantastic comedy actor to begin with, but I think she managed that alongside the drama really well. Mm. And I really enjoyed her performance. I'm not sure, however, that everybody quite managed the tonal range. And I think the tonal range was too big to handle. I love the ambition, but there's a point where you should possibly stop putting presents in the box. It's a beautiful box. There's glitter all over it. We've managed to get the lid on, wrap a ribbon around it, but it's clearly bulging and maybe just tearing in the corner. And so we had actors like, I think probably Xuan suffered the most from having a tonal range that I don't think is playable mm. because she's got to be that almost Greek tragedy, oh, how I have suffered. And then she's got to make a load of dick jokes. It occurred to me just before the interval that what I was watching was somebody trying to do both halves of Carol Churchill's Cloud Nine at once. And if you know Cloud Nine, it starts in the Victorian era with that incredibly strong, unquestionable patriarchy and marginalised characters, gay people, women, just trying to begin to pull at the threads of the edge of that overwhelmingly draped fabric. Mm. And then after the interval of that play, we're in the modern age. And by now, everybody's pulling at those threads and we see how thin the tapestry is. But here, Joel, especially in the script, was trying to go from, no, this is really the 17th century and the patriarchy is dominant, to, 
I'm going to scream at my father to fuck off. And also go from tragedy to basically farce. That's a lot to manage. And it felt disconcerting for me and not even in an interesting way. It just felt like it fell apart at the seams in a couple of scenes. Although others, like Joe's, managed it. I was kind of hoping for a starker treatment in the direction. If you imagine the scene where Xuan's character is speaking to her father, played by Ivan, and maybe you put her in half of the stage with a very cold, stark light that throws hard shadows, and then you put him in the warm glow of the Enlightenment, then when they speak to each other, maybe we see that they are in absolutely starkly different worlds. Mm. But... I couldn't imagine that the world of the play was big enough to contain all the elements that had been stuffed into it securely. Mm. I Actually, when you mentioned dick jokes, I kind of like forgot that she did that because I felt like Shuan was more or less in a more dramatic side of things tonally and how she kind of portrayed the character from the start, right? And for me, only in that kind of monologue where she kind of speaks against her father, I was actually quite impressed by her acting. Like, she kind of yeah, redeemed herself really in well. the acting. But then I kind of forgot what play I was in. I was like, oh, I'm in a dramatic Shakespearean play. But I those thought, those know? dick jokes and those fast mannerisms, she does that too. Mm. It's just you don't want to accept it because... The Correct. heart of her character is yep. clearly on yes, the Greek tragedy exactly. side. So it felt like maybe she really dug deep into that part of her character. Yeah. And, and so those were really, really portrayed um, effectively for me. Yeah, Yeah, but then exactly as you say, right, because she was part of that whole sexual gags and everything, but then she throws herself on the floor weeping and wailing and like, oh, I have to marry Tartuffe. Oh, I'm ruined. Oh, father. You know, it becomes full-on tragedy um, and I think just squaring that with the way in which we have this pentosex mm-hmm. scenes it just felt a little much it was obviously trying its best to kind of push boundaries but you know question whether it had to press every single button um, and, and I mean Joel I have to say so we should talk a little bit about Joel's adaptation I mean he chooses to kind of obviously set it in the original 17th century um, but they obviously speak in in modern mm. in, a, in I mean it's a lot of F-bombs thrown around um, it's a, quite a play of language as well mm. and I think that's where it's kind of obviously not modern day but at the same time kind of very playful with a lot of like you know double entendres and and things like you know there was uh, references to like to mess and my soul and you know all of these kind of like sex the sp- gags like and things like risen. that yeah, yeah yeah which which I think people absolutely lapped up yeah. and, and relished and all of that um, so I, I did enjoy the wordplay which he brought into this mm. um, and I kind of felt that sometimes you could have just worked with the wordplay and not actually shown so much on on stage mm. because that was actually very, very funny in itself. Mm. Mm. Yeah, there were a lot of like kind of repetitions of lines like that almost felt like um like people being hit on the head like, yeah. you know, kind of multiple times about the same point. So something like, oh, he's a free thinker, like say if scorn um, or even like we haven't talked about the ending but the ending when they say um, who has the ear of the king, I think it's repeated like three times uh, in just like in a span of like two minutes or something. So I felt like a lot of times things were kind of carried almost like a smidge too far yes. where yeah. you feel like, oh, it's become a bit obvious now. Which is a bit of a shame because I feel Joel's a really, really skilled and talented um, writer. Yeah. 
It's tricky because you can't do what the original French does. The original French is in rhyming couplets, and if you think of rhyming couplets and verse in English, Joel said in his program, it can end up if you're not careful, like Dr. Seuss. Yeah. It doesn't in French. French rhymes a little bit more naturally than English, so that when you get a rhyme, it doesn't zing yeah. necessarily. It can, but it doesn't have to. On the other hand, it does add a certain comic and heightened quality. But it also lends itself a little bit more to the serious stuff. So you get a yeah, you get a very high comedy approach in French. Whereas when you translate it into English, if you go into rhyming couplet verse, you end up much more on the fast side. And if you go into prose, you end up much more on the kind of dramatic、mm. side. So you really got to pick where you're going. And I do think that. Some of that insistence on making the joke again and again, which you wouldn't have to do if you were writing verse, probably needed to be resisted a little bit more carefully. But that was quite minor. I was very happy with the script, and I thought that all the lines did seem sayable by the characters. In terms of the dialogue, it worked for me.、Mm. Yeah, it it definitely did, and I think it was a very very captivating script because I mean, despite the length of it, I was really just taken in by the performance, the actors as an ensemble. I think just really worked very very well together. I'm not sure whether this play. Was at its best potential in a thrust staging. I was lucky to have gotten a really central seat, but I think if you were seated at the sides, you may not have really appreciated some of the scenes to their best, you know, intentions、mm. because blocking is just not great、mm. at some points, especially where you have two actors just walking around a thrust, talking to each other, and it's just kind of difficult to sort of get a really good.、Um, Visualization of what's going on for some of the gags and things like that. So that was just a minor bit, but I guess one thing we should talk about is the ending、mm. because that is a huge、um, addition which which Joel made. And you know, obviously in the original, they're in an impossible situation. Tartuffe has threatened Orgon to reveal all these incriminating letters, and the sort of bailiff comes in to presumably arrest Orgon, but suddenly. Arrests Tartuffe instead, and he's denounced. But here, what happens is there's a new scene where they're before the king, who's played by Pam Uyi, who played Doreen, the maid,、mm. and she's the king.、Um, and Tartuffe is revealed to be her chief advisor, and the king is completely taken in by the words and ways of Tartuffe now. So he's basically gotten into the year of the king, and poor Orgon is sentenced to death, and it sort of becomes. Much darker, more、mm. of a cautionary tale. No longer that kind of fast, where all's well that ends well kind of thing. Then he's given a final scene where he sort of sits on the crown and goes into this almost、oh, no, throne. No, he doesn't. <laughs> sits, <laughs> sits on, on the throne. Sits on the throne. He sits on the throne and and goes into this almost Richard the Third kind of like, oh, now there's no stopping my ambition. Maybe now I can. Get the king next,、mm. that sort of thing.、And、no, he, not just that, but he kind of speaks to the audience, and yeah, he's yeah. like, "Who is your king listening to?" Who has、know? the ear of your king? Yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. And it just felt a bit too heavy-handed for me. Like I thought, like you know, it's dark, it's pretty shocking, and you know, just him being alone on the stage, maybe even just looking at the throne, or just、mm. maybe even sitting on it, would have already achieved that. Like、mm. we don't need to have that 
full mm. monologue where he beats us around the head about like, oh, look what I've done. What could happen in your society? You know, that sort of thing. But mm. still, I mean, I think that ending was great. It just changes the tone so much. It just makes us realize that, yes, mm. you know, this is what happens. Devastation happens when you're taken in by a charlatan, when you let hypocrisy rule the day and, and there are real costs involved. Mm. And that kind of marks like the departure from it being a, like a pure pantomime, right? Like where there's like an obvious yeah, a... like consequence. Yes. Yes, I think so. And mm. we also did have a little bit of a tonal shift there. And while I wasn't fully convinced by all the tonal shifts the play had attempted up to that point, I think this one worked. We have Pam playing it with a very Singaporean patriarchal kind of accent. And we even have a little bit of rhyming just to lubricate that hard left stylistic turn. So I like that. And you have to change the ending in Tartuffe. You can't do the ending as it's originally written because it was very much a worked for its original time and place thing. If you were in the audience and knew the politics that were happening at the time with why Moliere was able to stage it now and he wasn't able to stage it for the previous five years you would have completely got what he was doing. Mm. But now you just think, deus ex machina, why has the plot been solved so unsatisfyingly? So yeah, I think it was a good call, but I agree with you. The monologue at the end didn't work because, yeah, we already know that. Mm. Like, how stupid do you think we are? You have absolutely proved already everything you go on to say in that completely unnecessary monologue. Yeah, and I guess like just putting in a screwdriver into our stomachs of like, oh, this is a political play, mm. wink, wink kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. If, if we don't know that already, I don't think the last monologue is going to help. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's a very clear tonal shift because it sort of becomes a tragedy, really, mm. like everyone's wailing and it's serious and real consequences and everything. But yeah, look, I mean, I think at the end of the day, that scene worked, even though there was that hard left. Um, I appreciated it. I think Joel all in all, did a great job with this rewrite. It is not an easy play to rewrite so substantially and still try to hit so many different beats in terms of comedy and tragedy and big themes and everything. Um, so it was very nice. And I think, honestly, um, looking back at what Wild Rice has done in terms of their reinterpretation of world classics, this to me is something that definitely deserves to be revived and shown again like alongside their other classics like mm. Animal Farm and The Importance of Being Earnest. I mean, I think it's a, a very good version of Tartuffe mm. and obviously assisted by great technical elements. I mean, Wong Chi Wai had this candy-coloured pink set, um, you know, with the chandelier and all the bling that went along with it. Beautiful costumes by Frederick Lee that were very, very nicely done. I'm not sure whether they necessarily distinguished each of the archetypes of well, the characters, as, as you were saying, Matt. Yeah, as, as I said before we started recording, this version necessarily sacrificed some of the archetypes by giving them serious themes that they wanted mm. to explore. And then as a costumer, I guess it's not really your fault if you can't tell apart the daughter and the stepmother based on what they're wearing. Mm. Yeah. Like, uh, if you go the other way and you really decide to make it more of a stereotype slash archetype play and you don't include so many issues that complicate that idea, you absolutely can make it distinguishable by costume, but mm. uh, just a necessary sacrifice, yeah. still well handled. 
Actually interesting because now that we've talked so much about the story and the direction and all that, it feels like the design kind of like faded into the background a little bit. Yeah. Um, like maybe including the costumes, even though the costumes were really quite But they were actually really beautiful. I have to say, I, it was fantastic. I loved the, the costume that Joe was wearing in the scene where she seduces Tartuffe oh, yeah. and she's in this black mm. cloak because they've all been praying. So all of them are in black. And then she just kind of has her back to the audience and drops her cloak and she's wearing this seductive... Black uh, and uh, red. Uh, black and red dress revealing her back. And, you know, it's like, oh, I'm here to entrap him. And it just looked very beautiful and mm. regal and opulent, which I think was very nice to see. And it, it just felt nice to see the Wild Rice stage also full yeah. um, after mm. such a long time. I mean, not only was the stage full, but the seats were full. So it was just very nice. I think something Ivan mentioned at the end of the curtain call as well, the first show in two years that mm. yeah. they've been playing to a packed audience. So it was just nice to have that fullness and colour. Actually, what you said about that scene where Elmia entraps Tartuffe reminded me of my favourite bit of the entire play, real stroke of genius from Joel. In the original, the wife Elmia is putting on a show of seducing Tartuffe. Her husband is hiding under the table because French farce. And she wants this to go on as little as possible. She does not want to be molested by this slimy creep. Mm. And what's funny about it and effective about it is that her husband kind of forgets to come out from under the table. And mm. so she's forced to put up with it and it gets very uncomfortable and absolutely hilarious. It's one of the funniest scenes in classic theatre. But Joel turned that on its head in a way that really suited the intentions of his production in that now she is done with her husband and she wants to humiliate him and make him suffer. So he keeps trying to come out and she shoves him back under so that she can show what an idiot he's being, how obvious it is that Tartuffe is a lascivious creep and to really underline the point that she's never going to have anything to do with her husband again. Just such a beautiful formal inversion which accomplishes something that is on the surface the opposite of the original but on the other hand is in keeping with its main themes and really pins it to modernity. Wonderful stuff. Really well written. Mm. Could it also be a direction thing besides being a writing thing? I mean, I wasn't a huge fan of the blocking there. Mm. I think it was more in the writing, personally. Right. Okay. <laughs> there were like lots of strokes of genius, I think, in, in terms of the... I mean, I enjoyed the wordplay a lot. In fact, more than the, the, the sex gags, the, the wordplay <laughs> was actually very amusing to me. Mm. Um, so I, I kind of would have just liked to just let them run along with that a little bit more um, and, and maybe be less kind of pento-like in your face. Mm. But, I mean, I can see again why they wanted to do that and just kind of portray this extreme debauchery as well. Yeah. I think overall, it just feels like, you know, because it's a return to form, a kind of return to the stage, it feels like they were trying to do a lot of things and I actually don't fault them for it in a sense. No. And I, you know, the audience was enthralled like yeah. roaring with laughter you I, know? I have to say like we've been three critics trying to pick this whole <laughs> show to bits and that's just because I think at the end of the day we all really liked it yes. I think it was an absolute hoot to be in the theatre great to see so many good performances and everything came together very
very well and I think just hats off to Wild Rice for pulling this together because I should say that this show had been postponed because of unfortunately cast members uh, you know being down with mm-hmm. COVID and things like that it was just very unfortunate because I had my tickets postponed twice before I got oh. to watch this show Right. so it was just so nice to finally see it on stage and everyone together and enjoying that being in a packed audience so hats off to the team yeah absolutely absolutely wigs off as well no. wigs <laughs> off wigs <laughs> off <laughs> Matt your wig take it off <laughs> <laughs> I'm the only one here who needs one right well don't um, have one yeah so with that um, thank you so much for listening and we'll catch you in our next episode bye bye thank, thank you. you bye bye